Mimi Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments from the 55 Karacy radio show exclusively for this podcast. They are back. Stock market ups and downs are returning, but is it as extreme as the financial headlines might make you think? You're listening to Simply Money tonight. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. Stocks had their first back-to-back weekly decline since February, uh, and we think maybe you should still be optimistic about the American economy. We'll explain why. Joining us now, Andy Stout, CFA, Chief Investment Officer at Allworth Financial, guiding close to $11 billion from right here in Cincinnati. Back-to-back declines, Andy. Does that have you nervous? Not really. I mean, volatility, market turbulence, that's a pretty normal thing. So when you're thinking about investing in general, there's risk to everything. If you want the reward of retiring and retiring well, you do have to take on some investment risk. So it's just the cost of entry, if you will, for your retirement. Hey, Andy, I, I think investors are worried about bubbles and, and we're, yeah. you know, we're looking at record highs and, and coming off a touch on record highs on most major stock indexes. Um, but we haven't come off that much. Do, do you think we're in a bubble? Do you, do you expect further downturns? You know, I certainly do expect some ups and downs. They happen every year. I mean, the average drop in any calendar year is about 10 to 15 percent. Wouldn't be shocked at all. I mean, there are some red flags out there. We're watching valuations like price-to-earnings ratios aren't as attractive as they once were. So those P.E. ratios, which tells you how much it costs for $1 of earnings, they're elevated right now. And we are seeing interest rates come up, and that makes them even less attractive. So when we consider slightly higher interest rates, currently slightly higher inflation, uh, that does make the valuations a little bit uh, on the upside, on the higher side. So I'm, I'm watching that. Wouldn't it be shocked if we see some, some more swings? I mean, it, it feels worse than what it really is, though, Steve. I mean, we've seen a lot of 1% to 2% moves in a, any given day over the past few weeks. But if you look at where we're at, we're only like 1% or 2% from record highs on large-cap stocks. Tech stocks are off a little bit more. They were down on this 12.5% earlier this year. They're still about 5 4% uh, from record highs. But when we're looking at the bubbles, uh, you know, they're, they're – Valuations are a little bit elevated. Right now, what's really grabbing the headlines is the the Bitcoins, uh, Ethereum, and those cryptocurrencies right now. Andy, this is something that you don't talk about a lot. I think you you look at the numbers, you look at the economy, its health. You haven't really gotten into Bitcoin because it's it's pretty speculative at this point, yet we have to talk about it at this point because it may be, in some cases, what's moving the market a little bit. When you see Bitcoin falling by, what, half? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so April 14th, things were looking great for, it's called digital gold uh, by the crypto traders out there. Things were looking great for digital gold. Digital gold, excuse me. Bitcoin was just shy of 65,000. Coinbase, which is a massive digital currency platform, that had their initial public offering the day before on April 13th. Uh, and things were just looking great. So that's, of course, when the sell-off began, right? Last Wednesday, Bitcoin was trading as low as $30,000. Now, it recovered by the end of the week. It got to about $35,000. Right now, it's trading around $38,000 or so. But there's been a lot of reasons for this volatility. One is, well, it's risky. There's high potential returns. When you have anything with high potential returns, you have to pay what's called a risk 
premium for it, which means you got to live with a lot of volatility if you want those potential high returns. So we have that. We also have the speculation of whether or not this will be broadly accepted. One of the con- uh, companies on the forefront there was Tesla. Uh, they started to accept Bitcoin payments. But Elon Musk said last week that they're no longer accepting Bitcoin payments because of the carbon footprint. In other words, the computing power that it takes to mine these Bitcoins is too much for uh, Elon Musk, and he didn't feel comfortable from it from a, an environmental perspective. And Andy, so we, speaking of the volatility that you have to be ready for if you're going to jump into an investment like this, when Elon Musk sends a tweet like that, and it impacts right that investment that much, uh, there's a ton of volatility there. Absolutely. It's just the power of one person putting a tweet out there and affecting trillions of dollars. It's really quite mind boggling. And there's also the, you know, the regulatory risk, right? IRS is now requiring any transfer of 10,000 or more in bitcoins to be reported. China's trying to restrain uh, anything crypto involved in the Federal Reserve. They're talking about their own digital currency and all of this adds to the volatility for Bitcoin. Do you you think the Federal Reserve is seriously considering getting into cryptocurrency, or is this just uh, a study? Oh, no, I I think they're definitely going to head down this path. There's too many upsides uh, to it. One one of the biggest upsides is longer term, when they want to do some sort of stimulus and they want to get money directly to certain people, it's just a hit of a button, and it goes right into a digital wallet. Now, the difference between these central bank digital currencies and Bitcoin, for example, is that Bitcoin's anonymous. You don't know what's going on. It's all controlled by uh, or you know, monitored by a central ledger, big computing network is what that essentially is. Whereas a central bank digital currency, it's not going to be anonymous. People will have specific accounts, and the central banks will know what it is. But it will make stimulus easier uh, to help get the economy going again. But you do lose a lot of that anonymity. So there's some there's some pros and cons, and that's what the Fed is doing. They're actually going to put a paper out this summer talking about the benefits and risks of a central bank digital currency. In other words, the Fed is considering issuing a digital currency, and I think it probably will happen. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we are joined by Andy Stout every Monday, breaking down what's going on in the economy. Certainly Bitcoin and the Fed potentially jumping into this cryptocurrency scene is worth talking about. But also, Andy, I think, you know, uh, Jerome Powell, the Fed's chair, learned pretty early on uh, in, in his role that he needs to watch what he says very closely. And so he's been very guarded about talking about what the Fed policy is going to be moving forward. But not every Everyone on these monetary committees have been as careful, and that might be actually um, triggering some things in the uh, market right now, too, right? Yes. So the Fed's concerned about two things, inflation and full employment. They want inflation to average about 2%. We're above 2% right now. Let's make no mistake about it. But the Fed sees that as temporary, and they want the employment to be you know, full employment, so inter- uh, unemployment rate around 4% or something like that. So what the Fed is doing, they have monetary policy tools, which means they're controlling interest rates and they're doing other things to encourage bank lending and try to get the economy growing. One thing they do is keep rates at zero, which is where they're at right now. The other thing they're doing is called quantitative easing. or it's a, They're buying a lot of bonds out there to try to keep longer-term rates low. They've been buying about $120 billion worth of bonds uh, you know, for quite a while now. And Jerome Powell was asked in his press conference during the Q&A session following their most recent meeting in April, he was asked, Are you, is the Fed even thinking about thinking about 
uh, altering the pace of their bond purchase, which would mean slowing it down. He said they're not at that point yet. He said they would need to see some sustainable uh, progress. However, and this is the part that's you know in, intriguing to me, is that in the minutes from that exact same meeting, there were people said there was a number of Fed participants who said, you know, we might need to start thinking about this pretty soon. So they mm. clearly are thinking about thinking about it. And then you've had two Fed members out last week saying that now is the time to start to think about this. So now those two people on the Fed who said that they were non-voting members, and that's important. However, they are thinking about thinking about it. That does fly in the face of what Powell said following his press conference. Well, this is concerning because the the Fed has been keeping interest rates low by buying bonds. If they're buying bonds, it props up the pricing of bonds, which keeps interest rates down. Since they're they're kind of a teeter totter, value values of bonds go up, uh, interest rates are down. So if we're seeing high inflation that uh, is exceeding expected estimates. Um, and the Fed stops buying bonds, which would raise interest rates even further. Doesn't that bode um, uh, pretty poorly for interest rates and, and inflation heating up even more than, than recent numbers? Well, I think inflation is going to be okay. Well, this time next year, I think it'll be a different story, but it's still unknown. When we think about inflation and the economy, we don't think in terms of absolutes. We think in terms of probabilities. So our base case scenario is that we do see higher than comfortable inflation for the next few months, maybe through the end of this year, possibly even early next year. But then it starts to come down because the reopening will have hopefully been behind us. Supply chain issues that dislocations caused by the virus should start to be resolved or mostly resolved. And that should help alleviate the price pressures. Now, we certainly do have inflation, and it's real right here, right now, and people are feeling that in their pocket. There's no question about that at all. But we do think it's temporary. With all that being said, how this relates to interest rates, if it starts to come in a little bit hotter and hotter, it probably does raise those probabilities that maybe inflation stays around a little bit longer, and that's going to increase interest rates, like you're saying. And if the Fed does pull back on their bond purchases, you're absolutely right. You could see interest rates perk up even a little bit more. If we look at where the 10-year Treasury is trading at today, that's a 10-year government bond, it's right about 1.6%. That's already up from about 0.9% when we started the year, so it's gone a long way already. I wouldn't be shocked uh, if we know what we're talking about with the Fed pairing back their purchases, maybe inflation comes in a little bit hotter. I wouldn't be surprised if we're near 2% by the end of the year, but that doesn't mean bonds don't serve a purpose in your investment mix uh, because they still add a lot of protection when you get the inevitable stock market volatility. So if inflation does stay relatively high and and possibly even higher uh, a year, year and a half from now, uh, what's an investor to do? Are there ways to make money in, in an inflationary environment? Well, what you need to look at, one way is um, to look at TIPS, which are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. They would do well depending on how inflation comes in. But it's not just if inflation comes in high. We all know it's coming in high. That's already priced into the market. I mean, if you look at where the market is pricing in inflation right now, over the next two years, it's about 2.9% on average per year. We expect this year to be a little bit higher. We'll call it three and a half, but when I say this year, the next 12 months. And then the 12 to 24 month period, what's being priced in is basically two and a half percent. So if you think that inflation is going to be hotter 
than two and a half percent in that uh, year one to year two period from now, yeah, then tips could be a good investment. I mean, nothing's ever guaranteed, obviously, but it's all relative to expectations. So that's the thing that, I, that we have to remember. It's not just if inflation comes in hot, if it comes in hotter than what's expected. And it's already expected to come in a little bit on the elevated side. So that's how you have to think about that there. Something I know you're keeping a close eye on, Andy. Thank you so much. Here's the Simply Money point. Pick your reason to be concerned about the economy, bubbles, inflation, the president, you name it. But remember, market turbulence is normal, it's expected, and long-term investors are the ones who are rewarded. When the government is paying people to stay home, what's the answer? Well, you've got to pay them more. Hard Rock Casino here in Cincinnati coming this summer, paying thousands of dollars in bonuses to attract workers as it prepares to open. Steve, this is exactly what you've been saying all along, right? Let let the, let businesses, let the market figure out sure. what people should be I, I mean, you know my feelings. The, the government's there for a safety net, but um, I, I don't think it's necessary for the government to step in and, and raise wages when, when the market's doing it already. And, and, you know, right here in Cincinnati, um, the Hard Rock Casino, they're finding workers. They're uh, they're struggling a little bit to find workers, um, but if they if they can get the workers in the door, the problem is solved, and they're doing it by paying some pretty serious bonuses. I, I mean, if if you want to work a tables game, they're paying up to four thousand dollars in bonuses. I mean, this yeah. is serious money. But I think it's smart how they're doing it because when I first heard this, I was like, oh yeah, well you get your bonus and then you you quit the next day, right? No, yeah. no, 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 no. They're they're smart about this. You go through a training program and you get five hundred dollars, and you, then you stick around for four months and you get a thousand dollars, and then after seven months, if you've got perfect attendance, right, you get another. And then if you complete an entire year without missing a day of work, you get fifteen hundred at that point. So there are kind of incentive markers along yeah. the way where if you reach them, you will get a total of $4,000. But they're saying, hey, this is enough. We're getting people through the door because of this. Here, here's how you cash in. Get three or four friends and say, hey, let's all work at the Hard Rock, and you get your job the day before they get theirs. Yes. Right? So, so you Referral get bonuses. bonuses. But, but here's the problem with that, with that thinking is uh, if they find out that you're going to make money if they've got perfect attendance, I, I know what I would do. I would say, you know, I really need somebody to walk my dog. I'm probably going to have to take a day off. <laughs> I got a cold, so yeah, exactly. sorry about that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, I could work that really, really nicely. But, you know, 4000 bucks. that's, you know, you get two or three friends going to work, and, and you're talking some pretty pretty serious money. So, you know, and it's not just uh, Hard Rock Casino. We're, we're looking at a lot of businesses out there that, you know, are, are they're just trying to get people in, especially the ones that are sitting at home making more money sitting at home than they are if they're working. So it, it seems to be working, and we're seeing other businesses. Businesses follow suit. Um, it's good. The marketplace is working. Yeah. Financial planning, it is all about knowing what you can know uh, and what you can't control. And here are some actionable ways, though. And this doesn't matter if you are five years away from retirement, five months away, or 15 years, ways that you can start thinking about it. What are you spending right now? Right. And, and I think there's a lot of people, Steve, that think you're either going to spend a lot less or a lot more in retirement. Yeah, you know, I, I've I've seen all different types of investors as they approach uh, retirement. The ones I love are the ones that 
Oh, yeah, we, we've been budgeting. We, we've been working this. Uh, we've got a spreadsheet. We'll show you our expenses for the past five years. These people are going to sign their exit papers, and their hands won't be shaking. The ones I get scared with are, are, are the ones, I, I don't know, I spend pretty much everything I make, and, yeah, I've got a home equity loan, and I'll pay that off when I'm retired. If you don't know where the money's going, you're going to be awful nervous at, at retirement. So, you know, don't believe some of those nice, simple rules that you hear out there like, well, 80% of your income is a good rule of thumb. No, it's not. It, it, it really isn't. And it's so individual. It, it, it is individual, and everybody's uh, in a slightly different situation. Not everybody wants to sit down with a yellow legal pad and, and a pencil and, and track every single expense. I get that. But, yeah, you've got to at least make an attempt to find out where's the money going while you're still working so when the paychecks stop, you kind of know how much is going out the door. And, and the problem with that is some expenses are lumpy. Yeah, they are. And so, and those are, um, when you have to pay maybe insurance twice a year or, you know, certain things that are due at certain times. Maybe five years from now, you're going to need a new roof and that's going to be $15,000, who knows? Um, you know, those are the kind of expenses that you also have to plan for. I also know people who will say certain months are more expensive than mm-hmm. other months, right? Maybe summer months you're traveling more or you've got a bunch of birthdays or whatever it is. You can kind of, if you started to to track year-round your expenses and just look at it from month to month, you'll start to see a pattern that yeah. certain months are traditionally more expensive for you. You have to just make sure that you're you're thinking about those and budgeting for them. I, I got one. Do you drive a car? I do. Yeah. Is that car going to last forever? No. And Not everybody, the way I drive it. Every, <laughs> every, everybody forgets that one. Yeah, yeah. In five or six years, you're probably going to take a look at a new car. Oh, no. I drive until the wheels fall off. Well, the wheels will fall off. So maybe it's seven or eight years for you, but that's a pretty good expense that you've got to plug into how much do I spend. So just one more example of, you know, just you don't have to get down to the penny, but get a good rough idea of how much money goes out the door on a relatively consistent basis. Take those once a year expenses and divide by 12 and say, okay, one twelfth of that expense is in this monthly expense number. Yeah, and also look at what expenses will go away in retirement, right? This is something that many times you don't think about. Payroll taxes, you know, FICA, when you look at that, you're always so mad about how much is taken away. That currently is 6.2% of of you know, taxable wages for you, that goes away. Uh, 401k contributions will go away at that point. So there's a number of things that you're paying for now, which when you get to retirement will go away. I've got one. And and a lot of people I work with love to give money to charity. And and some even will make it five or or 10% of, of their income. Guess what? Your income is lower in retirement. So, you know, not everybody's comfortable saying I'm going to give less to my church or less to this charity. But, you know, if you're basing your giving on a percentage of your income, when your income is down, it's okay to reduce charitable giving to a different retirement level. Yes, and healthcare expenses too. Those are rising five to seven percent a year. Something else you have to plan for. Here's a simply money point. One way to take control of your finances is to plan for your retirement spending. Every week, we crack open the Simply Money mailbag and answer the questions you send us at asksimplymoney at allworthfinancial.com. Andy, first question we've got is from Ted in Campbell County. Ted Ted asks, I have about $20,000 in student debt and $100,000 on a mortgage. What do you think about slowing down my retirement savings contributions just 
so I can finally get rid of this student debt. I'm 42 years old. What do you think Ted should do? Well, Ted's about my age. And uh, Ted, I, I think the first thing you should do is if you are able to um, find other ways to manage your debt without reducing your retirement savings, I think you should do that. So my first bit of advice to you is check your budget. Find areas that you might be able to cut back on because it is important to continue to put money away for your retirement. You don't want to sacrifice that, that if possible. Now, if you don't have the ability to cut down with any additional debt, um, you want to take a look at what, what type of interest rate are you paying? What's your interest rate on the student debt that you have? What's the interest rate on the mortgage? If the mortgage, uh, you're only paying 3% there, um, continue just to pay that as you go. Um, the cost of borrowing is very low. So my advice to you is try to find another way to pay for it and continue your retirement savings. But if worse comes to worse, you can dial it back, but attack the highest, uh, more, uh, the highest interest rate first uh, before you start taking into your retirement savings. And I, I, I agree. I, I think scaling back your retirement contributions at 42 is not the end of the world. You've got some years to make it back up, but please don't scale back below whatever your company matches. Take the free money. I mean, that's that's right. always our advice. Um, you're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. Uh, I'm here with uh, Andy Schaefer, um, Chartered Financial Consultant at Allworth Financial. And Diana in Madeira uh, wants to ask us, how much should I pay my financial advisor? My current one says that he doesn't take a fee because he's paid by the company. Big red flag. Is that, does that yeah. usually happen? Um, it's funny because I actually hear from a lot of people that things like that do happen and it does, it does smell fishy. Um, you know, if one of the things that I tell people when they're looking for an advisor is number one, are they competent? Number two, do you trust them? And number three, do you like them? But one of the things that I say specifically to them is ask them how they get paid. You know, what types of investments are they putting your money into? You know, a lot of advisors can be fee-based. Some get paid by commission. Um, and a lot of investments that you have, have internal costs that aren't very transparent, like mutual funds. So a lot of times they're getting paid one way or the other. Um, it's very important that you ask them directly to show you exactly how they get paid and the types of investments that they were um, uh, providing for you so that you can be comfortable with what you're paying a financial advisor. I think somewhere uh, between you know 50 basis points, which is a half a percent to 2%, I think is reasonable for a financial advisor um, if they're planning for you properly. And and I, I love what Ed Fink used to say, and nobody works for free. The money comes from somewhere, and Ed, Ed used to advise, um, don't be afraid to ask that person trying to sell you a, a product or an investment, um, how do you make your money? They're going to squirm a little bit, if, especially if they're on commission, and I'll take it one step further. If I sign these papers, how much do you make? And and find out, because if it's an annuity, and, and we've been talking about annuities lately, they, they fit they, they in certain cases. I mean, they're a legitimate investment. Just because somebody earns a commission doesn't mean they're a bad person. But let's find out what their incentive is. I, I, I think it's a good idea to have a rough idea uh, of what they're going to make. And if it's $7,000, well, maybe you're going to take a little different attitude towards what they're trying to sell you. Dale in Butler County. What do you think about buying some long-term care insurance? I'm 58, single, and have $600,000 in a 401k. Well, Dale, you are the proper age um, in order to buy long-term care. You typically want to get it in, in your 50s. But I would say, what type of money will you have for retirement? That's a benefit you may or may not need. So just make sure you take a look at your finances and see if it's affordable. And if not, try to save more in retirement to afford it yourself. 
Maybe you're five, ten years away from retirement, thought you'd stay with the company that you're currently working for until you just coasted into retirement, and now things are changing for whatever reason. So what does that new job search look like? Joining us tonight with some great perspective, Carla Messer is the Chief Results Officer at Best Work, Assistant Professor at Indiana University East. Carla, I think there's a lot of people who are probably finding themselves in this boat post-pandemic right now. I agree, Amy. You know, we are seeing that more workers are exploring what it means to have job satisfaction. And even I would go so far as to say there is a great migration upon us right now. It's not just COVID. I think there is a return really to um, what meaningful work and job satisfaction and engagement really looks like. Say we're 50 or over here. Um, What are the opportunities here and what are the challenges that we face if we're out there looking for a new job? Well, you know, the challenge that most people face is really trying to understand what it is that they are truly looking for because depending on what your situation or circumstance is, if this is a situation where you have to get back into the workforce very quickly, you may be tempted to jump into the first job that comes across your path, the first offer. And certainly um, a lot of people are in that circumstance. But when we have the moment to pause and really reflect on what matters to us, we can make better decisions about fit. In the economy here, I mean, certainly probably has an impact on what kind of time we have, um, you know, what we're looking for. So, so how do you say that? I mean, the economy is looking pretty good. We're coming out of this. It seems like currently there's probably more jobs out there than people. So how do we kind of make those matches? It's an exciting time, you know, to borrow from a real estate term, um, it is a seller's market. And so employees in many circumstances have the ability to pick and choose between opportunities. And this has really put some hiring organizations um, into a new mode of operating when it comes to hiring, shortening their cycle of hiring so that they make sure that they don't miss out on the best candidates. And so what I'm finding is this, this is very industry specific. And so job candidates can't expect a one-size-fits-all. It's going to depend very much on the industry and whether or not they're in a um, high hiring uh, mode or whether or not they're strategically hiring to, you know, fill in those important positions. So it is very much a different story for different individuals, but the good news is there are a lot of opportunities no matter what age you are and what skill set you have. So you're mentioning all these opportunities, Carla. Historically, you often hear stories about people getting close to retirement that feel like there's some bias uh, toward their age in the hiring process. Do you think that still exists in this current environment? I think that that has diminished greatly and that the reason is that you do have a lot of jobs and fewer capable candidates to fill them. And so it is a seller's market for candidates who are seeking employment. And uh, that bias that comes up, I think, has been greatly diminished as employers really have to take a look at um, who are the best employees and how are they going to backfill. So they're getting creative. Employers are overlooking COVID gaps, for example, in employment 
employment, something that might have caught an eye earlier would be a gap in employment, or in this case, age might be something that uh, somebody might object to in the past, but now is looked at as having robust experience. And, you know, there are always been tricks that are available that you can use to, uh, you know, a little bit reduce that bias, things like removing the date of your degree instead just listing the actual degree. Nobody needs to know exactly when we graduated. Exactly. And it is one of the things that oftentimes can create some bias. So there are some things that you can do. But, you know, the thing that I like right now is that the trend is that gray is in. And so it makes it much more difficult for people to guess ages based on, you know, judging a book by its cover. And I think savvy employers are in no way um, limiting themselves to employees that are below a certain age. I think that this is the time for older workers with experience to be able to translate their skills into transferable skills that they can apply in many different places. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We are joined by Carla Messer, Chief Results Officer at Best Work, Assistant Professor at Indiana University East, talking about if you are close to retirement and, and you're looking to change jobs. Carla, what would you say for people in that place who are maybe just starting to think in that direction? I, I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. Uh, I don't have the flexibility that I once had or that I crave now, whatever it is, for whatever reason. What would you say the first couple steps they need to take if they're going to jump into the job search process, maybe for the first time in a long time? Many people have been in a position and they've even forgotten what they're good at. I always recommend the first thing is to keep in, you know, kind of a file where you keep all your best compliments or the best reviews, et cetera, and refresh your memory about the projects and the compliments that you've gotten so that you know what is it that I'm really good at and then understanding what it is that I like. You know, we all have things that we can do. I have a lot of letters after my name. There are lots of things I've been trained to do and I can do, but mm-hmm. there are fewer things that I will do. And so, you know, I think as workers are, you know, aging into the next phase, there may be their their second act, it's important for them to really know, like, what jazzes me up and what excites me every day? Not the things I can do, but what will I do and what am I drawn to doing? And whenever possible, how do we align those things that really we love doing with our next position? If we have that luxury where it isn't about a, a compensation need. I love that because it's kind of like what gets you out of bed in the morning. And I think there's a lot of people who Monday mornings roll around and it's not so easy to get out of bed anymore because you're just not as excited about that. So how do you line up what makes you excited to get out of bed with the needs of a company? And then what do you say, Carla, to people who are hiring, who are looking to hire uh, right now about the current environment and maybe looking at people who might be closer to retirement? I think the first thing that I would say as advice is do not discount people who are in their 50s and 60s. They are still vibrant uh, you know, producers of great innovative work, and they have a lot of experience. And so I think that in any organization, we're going to have this continued challenge of having multiple generations in the workforce. And so the, the most savvy organizations are aligning their cultures to embrace not just 
the diversity that comes with race and religion and, and ableness, but the diversity that comes with age and this four generations of work that, of, of workers in the workforce that can bring extreme innovation and can bring a lot of stability to a workforce. So they are a workforce that is worth tapping into, and many of them um, are looking to bridge a longer gap than just a few years to retirement if they're doing work that is purposeful and is, you know, fulfilling to them. Great insights tonight from Carla Master, Chief Results Officer at Best Work, Assistant Professor at Indiana University East. If you are five, ten years out from retirement and just feel stuck in your job, understand that you're not and that in this current environment, you may have more opportunities than ever before. You've been listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, the talk station. You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. Now, if you could do us a favor, send the show to a friend if you think they may benefit from it as well. At Allworth Financial, we help you retire better.